0: It's good to be with you, uh, and I'm grateful that you are here this morning. We are going to be in the book of Daniel, uh, continuing a six-week series that we're doing uh, here on the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, looking at this theme of what it means to be faithful in exile. <clears throat> now, I'm going to be honest. Today's message um, uh, may come uh, at us in a way that that has a little bit of, a, of weight. It's somewhat of a a heavy leading question and topic and Try as I may, Um, I thought about the different ways that I could introduce the the message this morning uh, that might help, you know, kind of get us in a good position to to hear such a challenging question. Uh, But alas, I couldn't get any of the cat gifts that I had looked up last night to to show on our pro presenter. So I tried really hard, found some awesome cat gifts. Uh, If at any point during the sermon you feel like, man, this is kind of weighty, uh, and you just want to pull out your phone, go on to AAPS Public uh, Wi-Fi, and just look up cat gifts. It's fine uh, for you to do that. Uh, the ones that I had were, um, were incredible. I might uh, send them to you all later uh, for your enjoyment. But uh, So think of cat gifts for a moment, laugh, uh, feel good, uh, feel warm inside. Um, <clears throat> and now, now here's the the real introductory question. Are you ready to suffer for your faith? Are you ready to suffer for your faith? You see, as we have been talking over the last few weeks about what it means to be faithful in exile, we've been, we've been looking at what it really means to engage our culture. Uh, As we looked at Daniel 1 and and saw what it means to be in the world, but not of the world, set apart and holy to God, but also for the world, seeking the good of our neighbor, seeking to love those around us, love those who are different than us, even love those who have positioned themselves as our enemies, the Babylonians who have ransacked Jerusalem and killed uh, the families of those they've taken into exile. God says to those exiles, pray for the good of Babylon. This is a radical call that God has given us to engage the world around us. We saw in Daniel 2 what it means when, when trials come upon you in a way that, that you can't predict. It's not a trial because of your faith per se, but it's a, a trial that you find yourself facing, and it's in that moment that your faith is revealed when your fears and, and uncertainties and insecurities come to the surface, and you're left wondering, where is God? Saw that God is there, and he 's spoken, he is not silent, he is a God who is completely sovereign, infinite in wisdom and perfect in love. But now we come to Daniel three and, and Daniel three is a passage that perhaps is familiar to many of you. the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. <clears throat> if a preacher can 't preach this chapter, he might not be worth. Uh, his salt. So I, I hope that I, I can do justice to a familiar text. But when I look at Daniel three, what I see is, is for the first time, Daniel. He's not mentioned in this text, but his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faced with that moment when their faith is challenged, and they have to ask themselves and they have to decide for themselves: Will I stand? or will I bow? Will I bow, or will I stand? Those are the questions that confront us, and as we think about this question of will we bow, or will we stand, it's a question that shouldn't just surprise us that it comes from Daniel, but it really permeates all of the Bible, and especially when we get to the New Testament. Jesus told his disciples, if the world hated you, the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And he says in John 15, verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul told uh, the Philippian church, we looked at this a few weeks ago, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you believe in him. That's good, that you believe in Christ, God's gift to us. And right alongside that believing, it's been granted to us that we would suffer for his sake. Paul told his young associate, Timothy, know that all those who desire to live a godly and upright life will be persecuted, will suffer when you faithfully follow Christ. Peter told those that he was writing to in the book of 1 Peter, whom he identified as exiles, as sojourners, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening, happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, when I read the Bible, I can't escape this this truth. If If I am going to stand for Christ, I can expect others to be against me. If I am going to stand faithfully for Christ, I can expect others to be against me. Now, understand what, what we're talking about here. I, I think as we think about standing faithfully, and we think about bowing or standing, being faithful to Christ in our culture, it, there, there's a few different postures that we can take that uh, I want to acknowledge here on the front. And we can hear this message. And, and many times Christians uh, in our culture today are, are kind of over here complaining about the loss of influence and significance in the culture, we we kind of feel pushed out, right? Like there's this sense of, well, wait a second, like I I, I have a say. I want to speak up to this, or or I, you know, I don't want to be pressed to the margins. Um, and, and so it's easy for us to, to kind of turn inward and be frustrated and complain and, and sometimes we're, we're over here and we're, we're saying no matter what I'm going to fight for my right. I'm going to stand up for my, whether it be my first amendment rights or, or my obligation to speak on this issue or whatever the case may be and, and so we can kind of become combative. So we, we either can retreat or, or we can come combative. And, and I think the spirit in those things, uh, it, it reflects a desire where we're wrestling with the tension of, we know we're not at home in this world, but it kind of feels bad to, to be pushed out and on the margins and not have influence and not know what to do and how to speak up for our faith. And then on the other hand, we, we have this desire to speak, to speak for Christ, to stand boldly. And, and sometimes that stand, and this, this is my internal battle. I, I have this desire to faithfully represent Christ in, in the culture, and the public sphere, and, and all of a sudden I can find myself becoming defensive when I'm in a conversation and really combative, and I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to, to, to kind of make my point rather than faithfully reflect Christ. I don't want to become, I don't want us to retreat, and I don't want us to be combative. I, I want us to understand that God calls us to stand faithfully for Him. We can expect that there will be opposition when we stand for Christ. But, but here's what God's word tells us. The opposition isn't to you. The opposition is always to him. It's always to, to his message and to his word. And, and it's a joy for us as his people, as Christians, to stand faithfully upon his word. To be faithfully committed to upholding who Jesus is and what he said. So neither combative or retreating, but, but seeking to stand faithfully. Identifying with Christ. And, and perhaps if you hear this and, and maybe, maybe you're thinking about Christianity or you have a friend who's a Christian and you think about this message of, uh, it kind of almost sounds like a martyrdom syndrome. You know, if you stand for Christ, people are going to be against you. That's, that's not at all what I think uh, is so encouraging about the Bible is it's so realistic. It's so uh, real and true to life. God's not giving you pie in the sky. He's not giving you principles that increase positivity in the universe, right he he's calling you to to walk in his ways and to identify with him and he and he tells you it's going to be difficult at times when you identify with me. There are going to be trials that come when you identify with me, but we're going to see today that though we can expect that opposition to come, we don't face that opposition alone. but we must all ask ourselves as a pastor my my desire for our church is for is for Our church to be ready whenever the trial comes, whenever the conflict comes, that we would stand faithfully. See, my my conviction is that it's going to come in some way, shape, or form. I'm not talking about some cataclysmic cultural thing. Perhaps that will, will come. That's not my job to predict. That's beyond my pay grade. But it'll happen at your workplace. It'll happen perhaps in your home, with your family. It'll happen amongst a group of friends. You'll feel that conflict. You'll feel that, that, uh, that occasion arise when, when you're confronted with the question, will I bow or will I stand? Will I be faithful to Christ or will I retreat and compromise? I want us to be ready. Not only ready on the day that Christ returns, but ready tomorrow when the opportunity arises for us to stand faithfully for Christ. Not as an arrogant jerk, but as a gracious, loving, compassionate, committed follower of Christ. So that's what I want to be. That's what I want us to be as a church. I lament how many times Christians, myself included, have failed to live up to our message. Right? We have the best Savior. We have the best gospel. Sometimes we trip over our own feet. To be faithful to him. In Daniel 3, 1 through 7, we, we see this question confront us of will we bow? Daniel 3, read with me, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar says, or King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. Now, I know you guys are all familiar with cubits, but uh, if, if you aren't like me, that means it's 90 feet by 9 feet, right? So this is a massive Statue, right, that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. Um, And it says he set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. It's likely here in verse one. There's about 15 years or so between the events in Daniel chapter two and the events in Daniel chapter three. In the in the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, it, it has a note that says this is this happened in the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so, the, previously we were in the in the third year of King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, and so some time has passed. But what's interesting is Daniel chapter two was about a statue. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue that got. Uh, that got destroyed basically by a little rock that represented God's kingdom. Uh, and the, the head of that statue was, was made of gold, and it represented Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and, and we saw last week how, uh, how ultimately futile it is to build our life on anything other than God and his kingdom. But, but you could tell Nebuchadnezzar's been thinking about that dream and that, that desire hasn't left him. And so now comes the time that he's going to set up this statue that's gold-plated, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. Most likely, like, think, you know, Washington Memorial. This is what it is. Gold-plated, straight up into the heavens. When the sun hit it, uh, it would blind you. You know, it's, it's that kind of, uh, of picture. And, and we see that he set it up. And if you read through verses 1 through 18, 10 different times, you're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar, or Neb as I'm going to call him from now on, set it up. He set it up. He set it up. He set it up. This is this refrain. It's, it, it's clear that Nebuchadnezzar set up the, the tower, right? Nebuchadnezzar set up the statue, right? That's ab- abundantly clear. And, and what's happening here is, is basically we're seeing Nebuchadnezzar call all the people in the, in the province of Babylon to this great occasion, to this great celebration We we see in verses 2 through 7 a lot of repetition. It says that King Neb called together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, the officials. It's going to repeat that whole uh, group in just a few verses. And it says that he gathered together and he put together a, a very nice band, right? It's got the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, which is a triangular harp, which I was fascinated by. I wish I had a trigon. Uh, and the lyre, uh, the trigon, the harp, and the bagpipe. Um, and anytime the bagpipe comes on, I feel like called to worship. I don't know if you're like that. There's, there's amazing grace, and then there's amazing grace with bagpipes, and that's uh, gloriously beautiful, right? And and so here you have the bagpipe and uh, and a bunch of other instruments. Every kind of music, it says. All the people are together. All the music, all the fields are together. And and here is the king's decree, verses 4 through 5. You are commanded, O peoples. Now listen, listen to who he's talking to. O peoples, nations, languages, all the people of the earth, that when the band starts playing, the the harp and the trigon and the the, um, all the instruments that, that he lays out, the, uh, the uh, bagpipe especially. All, when the band starts playing, fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Who set up the image? Nebuchadnezzar, right? Or, or Neb. Uh, he set up the image. All the people are to worship. What's, what's going on here with this picture? I think what, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is, is really trying to leave a legacy for himself. Uh, to, to make his mark, uh, to leave his mark, so to speak. And, and in doing so, he's unifying all the peoples of his kingdom, calling them all together uh, to, to their allegiance to King Nebuchadnezzar and to the Babylonian gods. Now, the line is kind of fuzzy between Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the Babylonians. Uh, and, and the Babylonian gods. It seems like to worship one is to worship the other. Nebuchadnezzar says, "To be loyal to me is to be loyal uh, to the Babylonian gods." He's demanding absolute allegiance and unqualified worship of all the people, while also trying to accomplish something politically and and nationalistically, unifying the people. But it's interesting as we see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. It should call to our mind uh, at least two passages. One is found here in Daniel, Daniel chapter two, verses. 20 through 21, where Daniel prays to, to God in, in response to, to him revealing the dream to him in chapter two. And Daniel says this about God. He said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever who, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. Listen to this. He removes kings and sets up kings. It's the same, same word. The Nebuchadnezzar set up the statue but it's ultimately God who removes and sets up kings. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do what only God could do, trying to establish a name for himself, trying to set himself up and his kingdom up. But it's God who sets up kings and kingdoms. And also, this should this should call to our mind the Tower of Babel. Perhaps you're familiar with that story. Back in Genesis 11, the the people at the time gathered together in the in the. Uh, the region of Shinar, which is here in Babylon, not too far from the plains of Dura. And they gather together and they basically in rebellion against what God had said to uh, to, to expand, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. They said, we don't want to do that. Let's all come together. Let's build a city and a tower and make a name for ourselves. Let's build it as high as the heavens and maybe God will see it. And in, in rejection of God's command and a defiance of God, they come together, they seek to make a name for themselves, to, to leave a legacy for themselves. And what happened at the Tower of Babel is a picture of sin that has continued throughout all time, that we, we elevate ourselves in the place of God. We try to make our name great rather than making God's name great. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does Just like they did at the Tower of Babel hundreds of years before. Here, Nebuchadnezzar seeks to do the same thing. So so what does this look like to bow? What is the the temptation to bow? I I would break it down in two ways. We see the pressure to conform in verses 1 through 7. I mentioned the spectacle that Nebuchadnezzar had created. All All the who's who uh, of the people would come together uh, for this event. And everyone was there. The music was, uh, was, was live and, and, and everybody's there. And when the music starts, that's when you bow. And you can just feel the pressure, right? All the people, the music, the scene is set. Bow to the king. Bow to a statue. Even if you didn't believe the king or believe their gods, you better bow. Right and In verses six through seven, the consequences of not bowing burning you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace is what it says in verse six to everyone who doesn't fall down and worship. When everyone's doing it, there's this pressure to conform. Have you felt the pressure to conform before? the pressure to compromise your faith? It, it may not look like this celebration I Certainly haven't seen anything like this myself where uh, the music is live and you bow down to, to the statue. That's not what we do. We're too sophisticated for that today. So we think, right? But that pressure perhaps to be on the in the in-group with a certain group of friends. Perhaps you felt this on campus, in your workplace. It's this sense of if you're going to fit in here, either your faith has to go or you have to keep it to yourself. That pressure to conform. Why is your faith such a big deal? Why, why do you got to make that such a big deal? Just let it go. Pressure to conform. But I think the bigger thing that almost jumps out at the page to us is not just the pressure to conform, but the temptation to embrace idolatry. Now, this seems obvious, right? Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue and demands everyone to bow down and worship. Uh, if you want a text ba- textbook case of idolatry, here it is. But how does idolatry work in our hearts, in our lives? You you could say that we all worship something, and, and the, the the terminology the Bible gives is you either are going to worship the uncreated God or you're going to worship created things. Those, that's the option that 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 the God of the Bible gives us. It's it's not well, you know, you could worship this or that is uncreated God or created things. One one author commentator, D. A. Carson. Uh, said that says it this way, idolatry is anything and everything that displaces God. Right? It's, it's the, what I was talking about that they did at the Tower of Babel, the elevation of self that makes me try to find my identity and place in the universe, get this, by appealing to something or someone other than God. It, it, it's trying to, to, to find our identity or to center ourselves in the world upon someone or something other than God. The Bible is clear, you were made by God and for God, God made you to know Him and to enjoy him and to worship Him and idolatry is exchanging what God made us for for something that less that's less than who He is and what he's made us for we We could press in here to talk about the idols of the heart. Uh, the human heart is a uh, as uh, <clears throat> one uh, Reformer named John Calvin said is is an idol-making factory. Our heart just pumps out idols all the time—idols of success and money and pleasure and acceptance. We we live for these things. We define ourselves by these things. And in and in a town like Ann Arbor, uh, we we are, we struggle with the idols, especially of success and acceptance, wanting to uh, to to advance and and. Uh, sometimes we, we think maybe money is our problem. I think sometimes we're too idealistic for money. We, just, we want to we achieve greatness and change the world. And we have this vision of our success through our work and, and through what we do that, that we, we elevate that to, to define who we are. But, but I think there's something that's more true to this passage than those things. And it's this underlying idolatry of self. Behind every idol is self. Behind every idol is self. In the world today, uh, perhaps the way this expresses itself it, it has been d- has been defined as expressive individualism. Now, <clears throat> I'm not a sociologist or um, or a psychologist, but uh, those who have studied this have have kind of given this this title to to what uh, I would call the idol of the self. This expressive individualism. It's a term that suggests. Not only that we pursue our own path, but that we find our fulfillment through the definition and articulation of our own identity. Uh, that, that we get to define ourselves. It's a drive to be more like whatever we already are and to live in a society by asserting ourselves, by expressing ourselves. That The individual sets the terms for who they are and how they present themselves to the world. It's given pride of place. Self is given pride of place. We look inward for who we are. We, we see it in expressions like this. You be you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. That's the gospel of Disney, right? You can watch Disney+, Plus. it's okay. Find yourself. These are the expressions of, of the idol of self that I'm talking about when, when we really embrace them. So, so should we not seek to be authentic? Should we not seek to be real to, to who we are? That's, that's not what, what I'm saying at all here. Remember, it's when we seek to displace God from our life, when we define ourselves by our own standards, by looking within and being true to the vision of who we think we are rather than the vision of who God says we are. This is the idol of self. Here's here's a, a little deeper way that this works itself out in our culture what does the idol of self looks like? It looks like personal truth over God's truth. Right? According to, to the scriptures, the only possessive that we should put in front of truth is God's truth, not my truth or your truth. It looks like personal spiritual enlightenment over God's revealed truth in the Bible. It looks like a a spirituality that that looks within for the power to change ourselves than looking outside of us to the truth revealed in God's Word. The idol of self looks like religion that changes with the times rather than a faith that endures across time. The idol of the self looks like self-expression and self-identification over self-denial and identification with Christ. This can play itself out in so many different ways, but I, I, I dig a little deeper here to say that this, this will be the challenge. Will you bow or will you stand? And it will be to this question. It will be to, to these categories of, of, of personal truth over God's truths, personal spiritual enlightenment over God's revealed truth in the Bible, religion that changes with the times over a faith that adores across time, self-expression and self-identification over self-denial and identification with Christ. I know our notes aren't up. I promise I'll send this to everybody. Um, Mark Sayers uh, is an Australian pastor, author. He wrote a book called The Disappearing Church, and he's talk, he talks about the idol of self and the gospel of grace. And I, I love the contrast. And I can't give all the contrast, but I love the way he puts it. When we think about the idol of self, the only way to combat an idol, um, the only way to fight an idol is by something of greater power, more persuasive affection. Uh, and that that more powerful persuasive truth is the gospel. You don't get over the idol of self by just trying harder to think less of yourself. You get over the idol of self by looking away from yourself to the gospel of grace. And here's what the gospel of grace what it looks like. He says to be shaped by grace in a culture of self. He says the most countercultural act one can commit in our culture of self is to break its only taboo. What is the taboo? of a self-driven culture. It's to commit self-disobedience, to acknowledge that authority does not lie with us, that we ultimately have no autonomy, to admit that we are broken, that we are rebellious against God and his rule, to admit that Christ is the ruler, to abandon our rule and to collapse into his arms of grace, to dig deep roots into his love. We don't just need resilience, we need gospel resilience, he says. We need to dig dig deeper into God's grace to be able to resist the temptation to bow to the idol of self. Will you bow or will you stand? And we see that this confrontation comes for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look in verse 8. It says, after this confrontation, order is given and all the scene of verses one through seven takes place that at that time there were certain chaldeans those who are the religious advisors of of the king they came forward and they maliciously accused the jews specifically they point out to king nebuchadnezzar they say oh king you made a decree that all the band would get together and that when the music drops the people would fall down and worship but you know what verse 12 there's some jews oh king who don't bow when the music plays. And their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, King, the ones that you set up over the affairs of the province in Babylon? You, you start to see what's taking place here. There's a, there's a little bit of a ethnic discrimination and some professional jealousy on behalf of these Chaldeans, right? The Jews, the, these outsiders that have come, they, they don't worship our gods. And, and, you know, the job that you gave them that we would like to have— um, They're not even doing their job well because they're not loyal to you. These men, O king, at the end of verse 12, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Here's what we can expect when we ask the question of will we stand. We can expect confrontation. I mentioned earlier that the trial is coming It's going to happen. If we're going to stand faithfully, we can expect this confrontation to happen. Now, when I say confrontation, it it may not look like an argument, right? Um, If you do it on on social media, you're sure to get an argument. But if you do it in person with someone, it may not look like an argument. It might be a conversation, right? Uh, But it might be that moment where you're asked, what do you believe? Or you have the opportunity to state your belief that differs from the prevailing beliefs of those around you. Not in pride or self-righteousness, but out of a desire to speak, to speak truth in the midst of a a conversation. It might be an unexpected situation that you find yourself in at work or school. It may develop over time and uh, come to a head that you have to to give an answer for what you believe. Or or it might take place uh, in that moment and you're surprised by it. It might just be the the confrontation of a question over what we believe, or it might be our life. I remember in 1999, Columbine, Cassie Bernal was a teenager. In her journal leading up to that event, she was growing in her faith, and and she just was burdened to live out her faith on her campus in high school. And she said, God, I'm willing to die for you. I want my life to so be for you that I'm willing to die for you. And the shooter, the question that he asked some of the people in the room was, and it went up to Cassie, he said, are you a Christian? That was the question. And she said, yes. And she died. It's extreme, but it happens. It happens all over the world. Every day that Christians seek to stand faithfully for Christ there's a confrontation and sometimes for us it's just a a conversation it's just a uh, trying to articulate what we believe to a person that we know but sometimes it might mean laying down our life for the sake of Christ in response to the accusation that these Chaldeans make the king is furious Uh, and you see a pattern for the king right like this is a free kind of nugget but whatever you get really upset about is is pretty telling right what do you get upset about and just let let you know chew on that a little bit you just acknowledge what what that reveals about your heart Nebuchadnezzar demanded loyalty he demanded allegiance and he was furious that somebody wasn't giving it to him and so he he gives Shadrach Meshach and Abednego, a chance, a second chance. He says, I like you guys. I just put you into this position a number of years ago. Like, surely these guys are wrong, right? It says in, in, in verse 14, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Look, I'm going to let the music play, and then you do it. Just bow down. But when the confrontation comes, look how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. Verse sixteen. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. When the confrontation comes, I mentioned this earlier, but but as a side note here, just before we get to to their confession, notice the confrontation comes and they're not jerks. O king, O Nebuchadnezzar, O king, they respond with respect even though they're faced with this test to compromise their faith. It reminds me of 1 Peter 3. You got me familiar with 1 Peter 3.15. It says that we ought to be ready to always give an answer for the hope that lies within us. The second half of the verse says, but do so with gentleness and respect. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer the king with respect, but without compromise. If we're going to stand, we have to stand on conviction. We have to stand on conviction of, of who God is. Not, not conviction that I'm, you know, this is what I'm going to do. No matter what, when the trial comes, I'm going to stand. I, I love At the end of the Gospels, when uh, Jesus is doing the Lord's Supper with the the disciples, he says, look, tonight the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter. And Peter's like, no, Lord, no, we're not going to scatter. Even if I have to die for you, I won't deny you. If you've read the Gospels, Peter was very self-sure. He was sure of himself, but... Just shortly after that happened, he denies Jesus three different times. I I don't want us to be like Peter, sure that we would never compromise, sure that we would never bow. This isn't about being sure in yourself, but it's about being sure about who God is. Stand on conviction. And look at the conviction that they have. They say, oh, king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this. The matter is settled, they say. There's no, no debate. If this be so... If we must be thrown into the fire, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burn, burning, fiery furnace. I, I didn't get a chance to read this earlier, but Nebuchadnezzar, when he tells uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that he's going to throw them in the fire, he, 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 makes, a, he makes a mistake. He, he says this <clears throat> as the music plays. Just uh, let this sink in. Uh, it, says, it says this in verse 15. King Nebuchadnezzar says, and who is the God who will deliver you? out of my hands. Who's the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, our God will deliver us out of your hands. You see, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego believe that God alone deserves worship. What, what, what Nebuchadnezzar was asking them to do was to break both the first and the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make any craven image or idol or set it up and bow down and worship it because I am a jealous God. God says. He's the one who's worthy of our worship. God alone deserves our worship. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say it, but then they also say that God is able to deliver us. I love that phrase, God is able. See, they didn't doubt God's power. They didn't know God's plan. They didn't know what God's will was for them in this moment. But they didn't question that God was sovereign, that God was wise, and that God was good. They knew that God was able to deliver them. He's able to deliver them from the trial. He's he's able to deliver others from their unbelief. So many different places we could look to show that God is able, but I love what Paul prays in Ephesians 3, 20. Now to God Who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is able. If I could could maybe just pause and press here for a moment. You can know that God is able because of what he says in his word. You can know that God is able because of what he says in his word. And I hope that you'll you'll dig in and you'll find for yourself how able God is. But can I also ask you, not just from the basis of divine revelation, but from on the basis of personal testimony, do you know that God is able? You see, Christianity, Christianity isn't just principles to be believed. It's truth that's meant to change us. It's truth that's meant to change us. Listen, if, if we say that God is with us and we say that, that God will, uh, will never leave us and, and we're confident that God is able, how do you know that until you step forward and stand, until you step forward and speak? You see, it's, Christianity is, is meant to be tried. It's meant to be worked out. And we know that God is able, not just by looking at his book, but we know that God is able when we examine the past in our lives and we can recount the ways in which God has been able. Have you experienced God being able to work in your life before? Maybe it wasn't in the moment of of standing for for the gospel, but maybe it was in the trial that you faced in your life and you saw God show up and strengthen you to stand faithfully, to, to comfort you when sorrow overcame you. I'll never forget the, the day that I found out my dad had passed away. I knew the truth of the resurrection. I could, I could preach a sermon on 1 Corinthians 15. I knew that God was able to raise the dead and, and one day he would raise all those who had believed in him and we would enjoy forever in glorious fellowship with God and all those who testify and believe in Christ. But it was in that moment that that truth became a truth that I held on to. Not just a a truth that I knew, but a truth that I put weight on. I know that God is able. I've seen God sustain me. I've seen him strengthen me. Have you had that moment where you were nervous to talk to somebody about Jesus? Nervous about what you would say, right? I mean. Sweaty palms, fumbling over your words, not sure what to say. And you want to you encourage somebody with truth from God's word. Or, or you have somebody who's looking at you and you know they need to hear the gospel and you're trying to encourage them and say it. And you open your mouth and you see God give you the words that you didn't know you had. You see God help you to, to love a friend that you didn't know you could love. You see God help and strengthen you to, to speak truth to them in the moment that they needed it most. That's, that's when we know God is able And I want us to know it from the book, but I want want us to have testimonies that abound that God is able in our lives. He's able to deliver. That we we could step back and remember how God was able to deliver us. Just start there. What's your testimony? How did God deliver you? And if God can deliver you, I mean, no offense, who can he not deliver? able to deliver and not only is that conviction so clear but but then i love verse uh, at the end of verse 18 but if not god is is able to deliver us but if not he's worthy of our lives he is worthy of our lives but if not O king we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up god is worthy of all of us All of our lives he's worthy of. He's worthy of the sacrifice of our reputation, of an invitation to hang out with those people, of losing access to the inner ring or losing status. He's worthy of our lives. But if not, though he slay me, I will praise him, Job says. To live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul says. Look, that's a kind of calculation that normal people don't make. Until you experience the grace of God and the deliverance that comes through Jesus, you begin to look at your life in a different way and you realize that you're not your own. You create, you you commit the the taboo of a culture of self and you commit self-disobedience, believing that you're not the one who has authority and that is in control and you lay down your life to the one who is worthy. A Christian knows that they don't belong to this world of that they're not afraid to leave this world in faithfulness to Christ to be with the one to whom they belong if we don't ultimately belong here what do we have to lose in standing faithfully for Christ and the grand cosmic scene that's true but it's also true in the mundane moment when you face that shame and fear and uncertainty of talking to someone about your faith standing faithfully for him. God is worthy of our lives. And I close with this. I said at the beginning, if you stand for Christ, you can expect others to be against you. But our passage closes with this encouragement. We can also expect that Christ will be with you. Look what it says. As they threw them into the fire, Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury and the expression of his face changes And he takes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're clothed totally. He says, heat the furnace as high as it can go, seven times seven, so hot that those who open the furnace are burned by the flames. And then he throws in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fully clothed so that their clothes would catch on fire and they would burn for all to see. And the king watches. Most likely the way this furnace might have even been used to make the statue. There was a top to put in and then most likely some ability to look inside because it says in verse 24, the Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and they said, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes near to the door, and he he yells out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. And so they come out, and all the people gather, and they observe that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and the smell of fire had not come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel to deliver his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. We'll talk next week about Nebuchadnezzar, who just seems to be given opportunity after opportunity to behold the wondrous works of God, and yet his heart is hardened to him. But here he can't help but say what an amazing thing has happened. And when you read verses 24 through 25, Nebuchadnezzar says there's one who's like the sons of the God or, or maybe an angel who's come. And for a pagan king who worships many gods, it's not a bad guess, right? Perhaps it's the angel of the Lord or, uh, or, or one like it. Most, most, though, believe that this is what might be called a theophany, a, a God revealing himself in the Old Testament or a Christophany, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, uh, before his incarnation. That's exactly what I think is happening here. One not only like the son of, of the gods, but one who is the son of God shows up in the fire and is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When you stand for Christ, you can expect Christ to stand with you. And here's what I believe, that the presence of God is experienced most fully when we are pressed, but we stand faithful. That's where you experience Sometimes we wonder, where is God? How can I experience Him? We experience God when we, when we press in and we, we seek to follow after Him and come what may as we are pressed from the outside and, and opposed because of what we believe and we stand faithful. It's there that God meets us. It's there that He's with us. Preacher of old, Charles Spurgeon, said, you must go into the furnace if you would have the nearest and dearest dealings with Christ Jesus. And when I think back about the trials in my life and the, the opposition that I've experienced at times for speaking for Christ, it's those moments that I've seen Christ work most powerfully. What about the trials in your life? Has is it, is it been in those moments that you've seen God show up and comfort you with who He is? And what he's done for you. When you've sought to be faithful to Christ. And as awkward and difficult as it may be. Has it not been that there Christ has proven that he's worthy? We can expect to experience the presence of God when we stand faithful for God. And the reason that we can do that is, is not because our standing faithful, faithful obligates God to us. God has obligated himself to us through Christ. Through Christ's coming. And not only standing in the furnace with us, but going to the cross for us. Isn't that the truth that should comfort all of us today? That God stands with us because first and foremost, He came to stand in our place. We think about what it means to stand faithfully. Our faithfulness is predicated upon the faithfulness of God. That He is forever faithful. He demonstrated his faithfulness by going to the cross for us, by dying in our place and rising from the dead. Listen, church, as as we we wrap up and the band comes now, what I said at the beginning, I mean, I want you to be ready to stand faithful. I want you to, to be ready when the pressure to conform and when the temptation to embrace the idolatry of self is so real around you that your conviction is settled, that God alone deserves your worship, that God is able to deliver, that God is worthy of your life, that that would strengthen you, that that would be what what gives you the the clarity and the conviction to stand. I don't know how it'll come. Maybe it'll come this week. Maybe the pressures will get difficult and harder over, over time. But one thing I know, is that we have a Savior who stood in our place. And because He stood in our place, we can stand firm for Him, no matter what fiery furnace we face. Let's pray.